0: get the load I'm hauling hard work I hit it harder ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown backing up traffic called the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's town Cause I'm a working man.
1: welcome to fast line fast track presented by Fast line media Group your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the
2: evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to Fast Line, Fast Track. We're awful glad you're here. On this week's episode, we take a look at the latest on how the coronavirus is affecting agriculture, including a new development in the H-2A visa program requirements in light of the COVID-19 crisis. We also talk with Wisconsin farm broadcaster Pam Yonke about a desperate milk dumping situation in Wisconsin. And Steve Mercer of U.S. Wheat Associates talks about what the pandemic has done to wheat demand and prices. And then we'll take you to the legendary Ernest Tubb record shop in nashville tennessee for the music of justin dukes you won't want to miss a moment of it let's go my first guest this week is steve mercer the vice president of communications for the u.s wheat associates and they promote the wheat industry on a global uh, platform and steve welcome into fastline fast track thanks brent uh Glad to be here with you. So first of all, before we get too far down the road, if you could just kind of describe to our listeners a little bit about uh, your organization's mission.
3: Sure. Yeah, we're the export market development for organization for the wheat industry. You know, our our mission really is to uh, uh, promote the value of U.S. wheat for farmers. So we represent farmer interests in uh, overseas markets and to help help increase the value for their customers. So for the flour millers uh, and bakers and wheat food processors around the world. So that's uh, that's really our mission. Uh, we've been doing that under the U.S. wheat name for 40 years now. This is our 40th anniversary. But there were two organizations prior to that, Great Plains Wheat and Western Wheat Associates, Uh, who who really started this back in the 1950s when U.S. wheat farmers are looking for new markets and partnered with uh, the U.S. government, the Foreign Ag Service, uh, to build overseas markets. So it's been uh, a pleasure and a privilege to do that over Many, many years and, uh, and to represent wheat farmers in, in important overseas markets. And uh, I know in that
2: 40 years, U.S. Wheat Associates has seen a lot, but as you go into the uh, annals of history
3: there, has it ever seen anything like we're seeing right now? <laughs> no, I really don't think so. I guess uh, you could maybe compare the upheaval. Uh, in the the great grain robbery from the early 1970s when the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. came in and bought up uh, millions and millions of tons of, of grain threw the markets into turmoil and made customers nervous overseas. But, no, nothing like this. I mean, our organization, uh, pretty much all of our events, face-to-face events with customers, which is really important, are are on hold, postponed right now, of course. And uh, the headquarters office uh, here in Virginia and our other office, U.S. office in Portland, are working from home. So, fortunately, we do have uh, the technology to communicate with each other pretty effectively, and uh, we're doing all we can to continue to give our customers as much information as possible uh, that they need. That's a big part of what we do Trade servicing, pricing, uh, uh, other information about market factors that, that affect the price and availability of, of U.S. wheat. Mm-hmm. When you talk about price and availability, uh, one of the things that we've been
2: looking at here uh, domestically has been a huge uh, run on grains, especially, uh, uh, you know, I, I just turned 45 years old last week, and never in my lifetime did I think I would walk into a store not be able to find toilet paper, one, but <laughs> (laughs) but not be able to find bread on the shelves. And, uh, you know, we made hamburgers on the grill last night, but uh, had gone into the store and couldn't find a package of hamburger buns to save our lives. And uh, I kind of get the sense that that's not just happening here domestically.
3: Yeah, it seems to be, uh, well, wheat wheat foods are a staple. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you consider it, I mean, 20% of the calories consumed in the world come from, from wheat from flour. Uh, and for the poorest, uh, one third of the world, it's 20% of protein. So it's a staple food. There's no doubt about it. And I think people must uh, decide, well, this is something that we're going to, we're going to put food on bread. We're going to eat bread. We're going to, this is what we need. So, uh, yeah, it is remarkable, uh, to see, uh, the shelves, uh, bare of that product, but you know, it, it, probably is having an impact. Uh, certainly is helping uh, boost uh, uh, farm gate prices for wheat right now. The domestic demand uh, is uh, is certainly gone up here lately. The question is, is it sustainable? Uh, it's not a supply problem. There's plenty of wheat, uh, not only in the United States, but around the world. But, uh, the limit is on more of the quality kinds of wheat, and I guess fortunately the U.S. is a good source for that. So uh, we have customers, uh, Taiwan, China, Japan, that are somewhat anxious about supply and have been asking us for uh, reassurance that, uh, that export supply will still be open. So uh, we suspect the uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that this is happening at at a time when the northern hemisphere uh, is about to to harvest and harvest the winter wheat and then uh, seed our spring wheat. Uh, so, you know, we also saw limits on production in Australia and other parts of the of the southern hemisphere. So, I suppose there's some supply anxiety happening, and so. Uh, we've certainly seen the impact of that in, in prices. And you guys work so hard to
2: promote uh, the, the U.S. product abroad. Uh, where are some of the growth opportunities and maybe some of the growth countries that uh, we should be looking at here uh, going forward? Sure.
3: Yeah, you bet. Um, it, the market has changed significantly over the last 10, 15 years. No doubt about it. I mean, Russia has come on as a major wheat supplier to, particularly to markets that are near them and markets that are more concerned about price. Uh, so it tends to be government buyers the Middle East, and North Africa, parts of, parts of our old markets uh, in Nigeria and other places. So, you know, we've had to adjust to that. Um, it's very hard to compete. Uh, we don't want to give up price to compete in those markets. So our emphasis, and we have taken funding that we get from the federal government as wealth well as producers, and started to invest more in Asia where, and Latin America, where the markets are changing, where there's a value for the type of quality wheat that U.S. can provide, the soft white wheat out of the Pacific Northwest, the higher protein spring wheat out of the Northern Plains, and and good demand for hard red winter wheat out of the Central and Southern Plains, uh, and markets that that we can service out of the, the ports in the Pacific Northwest and out of the Gulf. And so that's, that, those are the two areas where we see growing. Um, Vietnam, for example, uh, is a market that has really come to value and appreciate the soft white wheat grown out of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they don't make <laughs> – they really need that wheat. And we've been working really hard to develop headbands, uh, certainly up until the time when the trade war started to develop uh, markets in China. Uh, fortunately, we see uh, that trade perhaps picking up. So, so it's really Asia and Latin America where the markets are changing and where we can serve them. And there's an appreciation for the type of wheat we grow and the value that it represents.
2: When you talk about the type of wheat you grow, I understand that the U.S. is the only exporting country with grain standards that allow buyers to be able to specify both wheat class and protein content in their contracts.
3: Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, It matters a lot because... Uh, this it's part of a, a reputation for reliability that we have, and a big part of that is the grain standards, which are very specific. And actually, I've done some research recently that this goes back to 1977 when there was a grain new grain Standards act that really raised the 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 standards to higher levels, so that we could represent ourselves as a higher higher value wheat uh, and wheat classes in in overseas markets. The Federal Grain Inspection Service is crucial to that. They inspect every load of wheat that uh, goes into vessels by using the specifications that customers provide from overseas, So, and they certify that as an independent party that that customer is getting the wheat that they ordered, the specific characteristics that they wanted. So that's crucial. Uh, and recently we've been reassured by uh, the Federal Grain Inspection Service as well as uh, APHIS uh, that they are going to continue to do their inspections and uh, evaluations in ways they're going to keep the export markets flowing. So we've been telling that to our customers as well. Uh, in
2: light of COVID-19, uh, I know you said there's enough supply, but uh, if you look at uh, the whole supply chain, uh, are, are there any concerns there from from field to uh, uh, final destination that, that, that there are going to be any challenges or hiccups along the way? As we still trying to sort out uh, all the unknowns here.
3: Yeah, we have not had any indication of that. Uh, you know, the, the, the longshoremen who operate the export elevators, the, the grain trade, uh, everybody is uh, working very hard. And uh, as we've told our customers, the, the federal government has designated virtually everyone who works in agriculture and the export chain has essential employees so uh, they can go to work uh, the we've given that information to our customers overseas the, the inspection service and others are still still working and so that is uh, crucial to the flow of exports We are we're moving wheat uh, from the farm. Uh, over rail and barge to the export elevators, and the boats are getting filled. So uh, that's the message we've been telling our customers. You know, I think we we have to appreciate the the willingness of those folks who operate the export elevators uh, and and do this work, you know, for for being there and going to work. So we really appreciate that. And You know, our message is uh, to date uh, that the U.S. Wheat Store is still open. Well, and if folks want to
2: know more about it, uh, I'll I tell you what, some of the great facts that I've learned here, just looking at the, the website uswheat.org and checking out the great wheat letter that they do. So many experts that, that contribute to that. And uh, you can really gain a wealth of knowledge uh, through the great work that you guys are doing there.
3: Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, we're... we're uh pleased with the amount of uh, uh, information that we can provide through our website and, and of course in markets through our, our staff overseas. Uh, USWheat.org, as you mentioned, uh, we've got uh, some special information up right now about that 40th anniversary and our Wheat Letter blog uh, is posted in there under there's a menu for news and information. Uh, if you go to that website, click on news and information and look at Wheat Letter. Uh, that's uh, that's the information there. We also uh, are on Twitter uh, and Facebook as well. So that's a great way to uh, get to information on our website. So just look for uh, U.S. Wheat Associates under uh, Twitter or Facebook, and uh,
2: you can find us there. Well, make sure you go check those guys out on socials and go to that website, org. And Steve, congratulations on 40 great years, and uh, uh, we look forward to uh, catching up with you here down the road as things shake out. Well, we really appreciate and of
3: course we appreciate all the support that we've been given uh, by U.S. farmers for many, many years. They, they have a commitment uh, to this uh, legacy of commitment that Uh, is a huge part of our reputation in the world, and they've they've been the ones uh, who've earned it over the
2: years. Again, we've been talking with Steve Mercer, the Vice President of Communications for U.S. Wheat Associates. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, it came to light this week that many dairies across the country are asking farmers to dump milk as they're finding it challenging to pick it up or process it in light of COVID-19. The situation has been particularly dramatic in Wisconsin, where on Wednesday, April 1st, the state's Ag Secretary, Randy Romanski, talked with broadcaster Pam Yonke, the Midwest Farm Report in Madison, about the situation. Take a listen.
4: Well, unfortunately, our worst-case scenario is starting to unfold for a lot of Wisconsin dairies. Uh, We have found out that uh, more than 110 loads of milk around Wisconsin now being dumped, and obviously once that starts, you don't know when it's going to stop. Along with us, Wisconsin Ag Secretary Randy Romanski, who has been networking with all of these people prior to the actual action, Randy, uh, and, uh, and you're still working through it. What do we know as of today?
1: Well, what we know now, and, and we're you're, you're right, Pam. We have been talking to uh, organizations, individuals, uh, producers, processors, uh, transporters, just to try and uh, get a, a read on what's happening out there. And, and we have gotten the the reports that that you have that there uh, are, are instances, or there are going to be instances of of uh, uh, milk being disposed of. So uh, the the important thing for for us is to to work on this uh, cooperatively as, a, as an entire industry. So uh, we'll be talking to our partners in the dairy industry today on a conference call. Um, the other thing is that uh, there are some action opportunities for us in in, in the very near term. Uh, the governor's asked the Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection to put together a letter to send to the USDA secretary um, to uh, make a couple of uh, immediate requests. One is to uh, Uh, make sure to uh, urge the uh, federal government to make purchases of dairy products so that um, people who are uh, potentially uh, Experiencing food insecurities right now have access to a healthy nutritious product uh, While also making sure that we do the best we can to keep our supply chain going Uh, uh, Dairy producers producing milk and and processors processing Um, Step number two that we're going to do is we're going to ask the uh, Asked for a reopening of the Dairy Margin Coverage Program, uh, you know when when DMC uh, the program was opened in the fall, uh, milk prices were better. People were probably looking at the futures um, and seeing that this year had was shaping up as having the potential to be uh, have a, a better start. Nobody could have envisioned uh, COVID nineteen and the impact that it was going to have, uh, you know, across all industries, and so. Uh, we're going to request that uh, that the uh, USD open up that program for, for people to consider joining back in.
4: Uh-huh. And now, Randy, there are some things, if you are one of those impacted dairies, uh, we talked a week ago that DNR and DATCAP had presented guidelines on how we should properly handle disposing of milk, so that's out there. If you're an impacted dairy, uh, what do you need them to know as far as uh, taking action or what what they can do
1: uh thanks thanks for that question pam the yeah uh, as we discussed last week uh we dnr and DACAF were asked for what does that last ditch disposal uh guideline look like so dnr's uh, got it. it's on the dnr website it's on the dacap website we shared it with uh all of our industry partners uh, we shared it with the extension so anybody who has questions about how that happens if it has to happen, and again, we hope that it doesn't have to happen, but in that instance, there is uh, some guidance on how that how that uh, how that can be properly done under under the dnr's uh, rules um, the other thing I would say is that anybody who's faced with this potential uh, should document any loss of product. Uh, it's, it's important for them to have for record-keeping purposes. Um, and uh, then the, the the last thing that I would say is if, if there are any questions, if anybody has any concerns, um, the, the Farm Center staff is available to try to help uh, answer questions uh, where they're able.
4: Just initially now, Randy, not having gone through your conversation, Conference caller, that, to the best of your knowledge, how many companies are you believing have been forced to take this dramatic step?
1: Uh, at this point, I, I don't know, Pam.
4: So now we want to bring in the fabulous
2: farm babe, Pam Yankee of the Midwest Farm Report, who was on the conference call that uh, Wisconsin Ag Secretary Randy Romanski referred to. And Pam, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track.
5: Thank you, Brent. Appreciate it.
2: So this has been an interesting situation, to say the least. What did you learn from the secretary's conference call?
5: So uh, basically in the past 24 hours' time, uh, about more than 115 dairies in Wisconsin have been instructed that uh, their milk would no longer be uh, offloaded, uh, that they should begin dumping their milk. Uh, This is uh, milk that primarily was going to a milk processing facility in northern Illinois. Uh, The member patrons all at this point in my information gathering are uh, members of uh, Dairy Farmers of America, but there may be other dairies in Wisconsin that are very close to taking this action. The Secretary of Agriculture, our Acting Secretary, Randy Romanski, spoke with Governor Tony Evers today. They have uh, signed and sent a letter to U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue requesting that he immediately begin purchasing dairy specifically fluid milk, dairy products for the uh, government food programs and hopefully help people that are facing food insecurity immediately. Also asked that they immediately reopen the Dairy Margin Coverage Program for dairy farmers on uh, a state scene situation, Romansky is uh, also continuing to have conversations with the industry and find out uh, what's happening, what uh, their latest count is. I have to work cooperatively with the Department of Natural Resources as well as uh, our uh, DNR, Natural Resources, has uh, oversight on milk dumping since it's considered a hazardous substance. Um, So, yeah, we're just getting – right now it's, it's so fresh, Brent. We're just trying to get all the pieces pulled together. Uh, the state is also going to be, you know, one of the big deals that uh, the secretary stated with me is making sure that any of the smelt that gets dumped is uh, is kept record of how many volumes. Obviously, we'd love uh, a protein check, uh, a milk fat check, uh somatic cell check on it, just because that information may be necessary for some of our dairy revenue coverage program uh, insurance uh, um Items So, a lot of different pieces that are up in the air right now that we're all trying to pull together and and uh, get out to our dairy farmers, but the bottom line is a lot of milk that got dumped. I talked to one dairy farmer today, dumped 7 semi loads wow. today and has been told that he is not uh, they're they're going to have them dumping milk until at least
2: April 6th. Wow. So I want to read from a March 30th report by Bridget Cook in the Baraboo News Republic. And just kind of break it down for people here, in which she quotes from a letter uh, to member dairies from Foremost Farms, which is the dairy processor, a letter signed by company CEO Greg Schlaffer and board chairman David Shivel. And in it, they write Due to the extreme nature of the coronavirus situation and the impact on the economy, we believe the ability to pick up and process your milk could be compromised. And then they go on to say now is the time to consider a little extra culling of the herd or drying off some cows early, and to be prepared for scenarios that would require our members to dump milk on farms, ship milk to digesters, or dispose in some other manner. And so, from a consumer perspective, at least in Southern Indiana where, where I'm sitting here talking to you, uh, when all this started to ramp up a couple of weeks ago, when we were first starting to see a run on supermarkets, you know, we, we had trouble here finding milk, especially. Whole milk. And I had to run all over creation just to, to find at least some skim milk. And, you know, and then I listen to people like Sonny Purdue and Zippy Duvall, and they're assuring people that there's nothing wrong with the food supply chain right now. So, what are we seeing here? Is it a breakdown in, in, at the processor level? Is it, uh, you know, surely it's not lack of demand? Right, right. Right now,
5: what uh, I'd say is definitely not lack of demand at least not on the retail level. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a complicated system, though. Remember, once the schools shut down, that is the number one market mm-hmm. for fluid milk in the United States. So although the schools are still in many areas, most areas, still trying to provide that milk access for those kids, consumption is still down. So that was the first thing that dairy processors had to try to work around immediately. Never forget, milk is a perishable product. Uh, we cannot shut cows off. Mm-hmm. This is historically a time of the year when our milk production goes up because our baby calves are born at this time of the year, so our milk production goes up. It was a mild increase this year because we had a mild winter around the upper Midwest. So uh, we'd been we'd been looking at all this. When COVID-19 hit, uh, all of a sudden consumer buying patterns changed. You are correct. You were like everybody else running out to the grocery store. I know that I'm, I'm a farm kid through and through. And I was shocked that I actually witnessed for the very first time basically an empty meat showcase mm-hmm. at my local grocery store. Uh and like you said, the fluid milk has been scarce. Uh the and I just had somebody point out on my Facebook page with which is Fabulous Farm Babe by the way, a really good point that uh the milk is out there. We've obviously got the milk. It is it is quite honestly a processing bottleneck. Some of it may be because of employees that are sick or calling in sick because of COVID-19. The other is, and it makes sense, uh, some of the processing lines, how do you decide? Are we going to make half gallons or are we going to make gallons? Uh, Those kinds of simple things can actually snag up uh, milk uh, distribution, all across uh, the United States. So that was another issue that the milk processing industry is trying to get their arms around. But uh, believe you me, there is not a lack of milk out there. That's why Wisconsin is just absolutely shocked to be witnessing what we're witnessing. But it surely does appear, at least on the short term, it is a processing question that they've got to move through. And uh, hopefully, I know that here in the state of Wisconsin, we still have major grocery stores that have signed up limiting the purchase of uh, milk. And uh, if if milk is truly out there and if we can get processors back online as far as uh, getting the product to the market, then I would like to see our governor basically insist that grocery stores remove the purchasing limitations and let anybody and everybody that wants milk get it. And then just, again, like I said, make sure that those processors are staying on the job and trying to get all that milk processed and to the stores.
2: Well, I'm going to circle back to a couple of things you said earlier. One, the uh, uh, the ask by the, the state of Wisconsin uh, to uh, Sonny Perdue's office to consider the purchase of dairy products to give to food insecure And then you also uh, talk about it uh, being a a perishable item with a finite shelf life. And you and I both know that the government doesn't necessarily move too swiftly on anything. So, I mean, do you you have confidence here that they can uh, get everything in place that they need to to make something happen on that front?
5: Well, I know that uh, I think I'm still a little shocked that they got uh, the $2 trillion done uh, as far as the CARES bill, which Mm -hmm. includes benefit for agriculture. I have just gotten off the phone with some uh, folks in Washington, D.C. that remind, remind people and farmers that uh, the paycheck, protect, paycheck protection aspect of CARES will apply to farms stretching back to um, February. That could be critically important for farms to even stay uh, awake, alive, viable. Then- small business loans. Now they are working diligently to get our farms to qualify for small business loans that could give in depending obviously there's a lot of different I don't want to, I don't want people getting any ideas that oh well that's how farmers are going to get rich but basically what it would do is allow for zero interest loans immediately to farms that could cover their expense on employees, their expense on utilities to keep their operation going and obviously that means uh, that they that's one less bill that they've got to try to write or cover. I'm sure right now that my A, major ag lenders are working and reaching out to these dairies. In fact, I know that they are. Uh, in some cases, maybe they're going to try to defer their debt payments, uh, but they are going to do everything they can do within their power to capitalize on any of the government pro- <clears throat> programs that come online and make sure that those farms are implementing it, applying for it, and trying to uh, get that job done. No, I am not uh, so naive to believe that uh, that phrase, I'm, I'm with the government, I'm here to help, actually <laughs> applies. But, uh, but I do have to remain optimistic that uh, if there's enough noise made by consumers, the dairy industry, to tell them exactly what we need when they may be covered in a cloud of COVID-19 themselves, uh, that we may get some quicker action just because of the severe, uh, economic toll this virus has had on the world.
2: So from a personal standpoint, what, what are you guys hearing from farmers? I know this is absolutely the wrong time uh, to be being hit with this. I, I was listening to the great report that uh, Josh Scramlin had uh, earlier about the uh, a farmer from West Bend, Wisconsin, uh, who, who was uh, asked to dump and was doing it. And uh, boy, it just hits him right in the heart. Yeah,
5: it does. And that's the hardest part about this job is I've been a farm broadcaster in Wisconsin for, for more than 30 years, and uh, I know a lot of these families, uh, multi-generational, and I, I get I always used to get kind of corked off when people would start using lexicon like factory farms, corporate farms in Wisconsin. More than 95% of our farms are all family-owned. Multiple generations may be farming these dairies right now. Uh, that's uh, mom, dad. Uh, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, cousins, all coming together, uh, that you have such a personal connection with each one of those animals. You've got such personal connection with the land. And now we're getting ready for spring planting uh, activities to pick up on the farm. So you got a lot of things that are moving. And it, it's just really hard for me. I do television up here in Madison, too. And I'll tell you, Brent, it it takes everything I can do not to choke up when I'm uh, bringing these stories to the audience and uh, giving a market reports and stuff like that, I grew up on a small dairy north of Green Bay. We still farm that farm today, but the cows are gone. And when you have when you have walked in those shoes and you know the cadence of the farm, you know what you know what it sounds like when the cows are uh, you know out, out in the barn with their neck chains and the calves are bleeding and that it's it it just is it's very hard to tell their story without not having my personal side start to show so like I said all I I put a post up on my on my website midwestfarmreport.com it was just basically me and one of the final things that I closed with was pray it may not be fashionable and I don't care if you want to criticize uh, religion or whatever but man oh man I'll tell you that may be about all that's going to get us through uh, in this kind of a situation just pray that COVID-19 dissipates pray that uh, we all get a chance to return to life in a somewhat normal pattern and pray that this is only going to be a short, short-term short story that I've got to report on.
2: Well, I tell you what, I would not have said it any better, and I will join you in those prayers. And Pam, we surely do appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. And if it's okay, we'd like to check back in with you a little bit later on here and, and see what kind of progress we've made on this.
5: Sure. Sounds good, Brent, and let's hope by the next time we chat, I've got better news for you.
2: Yes, well, we will definitely be holding out hope for that. And we've been chatting with the fabulous farm babe, Pam Yonke. Make sure you go check her out at MidwestFarmReport.com. Well, last week on the show, we had American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall and a couple operators of large produce farms on to talk about the impact COVID-19 was having on the H-2A visa program, which allows farms to bring in temporary seasonal workers. Late Last week, the State Department announced a commitment to processing H-2A applications to ensure an agriculture workforce by expanding an interview waiver. American Farm Bureau Federation Congressional Relations Director Allison Crittenden says this change expands the pool of available workers.
6: Typically folks coming through the H.J. program would have to go into the consulate for an interview. These workers don't have to take that step in order to help the consulate maintain their efforts to have social distancing. They've expanded this now to new workers as well as returning workers whose visas have expired within the last 48 months.
2: Agriculture is designated as a critical industry during the pandemic. Crittenden says these changes ensure a workforce for the nation's food
6: supply. This is important for agriculture because it ensures that farmers and ranchers will have access to that critically important workforce. We are at a time when planting is getting started. Some regions of the country are already harvesting, and this means that we will have access to our h 2 workforce pretty similar to how we would in a normal year.
2: And Corinthian says farmers are focused on keeping their workforce healthy during the COVID-19 pandemic.
6: Farmers are ensuring that workers know about all the CDC guidelines. They are providing extra sanitary equipment, taking steps to rearrange housing when possible, for social distancing. Farmers are really taking steps to be proactive to prevent any spread of the coronavirus on their farms, as well as making sure workers are educated about their own steps that they can take to ensure their own health.
2: That's American Farm Bureau Federation Congressional Relations Director Allison Crittenden. As new developments occur with the H-2A program, we'll highlight them here on FastLine Track. And now we want to take you to the legendary Ernest Tubb Records shop 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee, for the music of Justin Dukes. The Georgia native has made quite a name for himself as a guy who's keeping the spirit of traditional country music alive. He's worked with some of the biggest names in the business, and in a moment you're going to hear why. I'm excited to share with you our time with Justin Dukes. Back on Fast Line Fast Track from the Ernest Tub Record Shop 417 Broadway in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Now it's my honor to bring in Justin Dukes who is uh, one of the uh, rising stars of country music here in Nashville, Tennessee. Had the opportunity to open up for for Vince Gill and uh, so many other exciting artists here in Nashville. Uh, Charlie Daniels and uh, a lot lot of folks uh, have this guy on their mind here and uh, uh, when you hear some of this music a little bit later on, you will too. Justin, welcome Come into Fast Line, Fast Track. Man, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So, Justin, you've been uh, uh, kicking around Nashville here for, for four or five years yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, uh, t- tell me about what gets you uh, uh, to Nashville. You're from Vidalia, Georgia. That's right. And uh, man, first of all, what uh, what inspires you
7: to uh, try country music? Oh, man, country music is my life. Um, ever since I was a little kid, I'd always sit around and uh, watch the CMT videos and sing a songs. so I put a Together and and uh, when all of the kids were asking for you know BB guns and. and uh, little cars, whatever. I was asking for music equipment. So,
2: who were some of your favorites growing up?
7: Oh man, all the '90s country um, artists: Travis Tritt, uh Keith Whitley, Vince Gill, Garth Brooks. I mean, all those guys, and Shenandoah, too. And huh. um, but yeah, I just and my first love was Elvis Presley, though. That was really that caught my music interest. And uh-huh. uh, but, yeah, even when I was a kid, I was uh, I was doing lip syncs, doing and being a little Elvis impersonator, and my grandma. Made me a jumpsuit, and <laughs> um, I'd go to nursing homes and different little talent shows and do do the little skits. So, what's your go-to song? Um, Elvis song, yeah. Oh man, I'd have to say I had to
2: keep it classic and go with like Heartbreak Hotel or something. There like you that. go. Yeah, excellent. Who are some of the others that you uh, uh, pattern yourself off of as a, a songwriter?
7: Oh man, really? Songwriting—it's—it's it's all about <clears throat> the idea. And uh, I tell you, uh, people like um, Guy Clark, <clears throat> excuse me, Guy Clark, and, uh, and people like Eric Church and all those guys—they're really—they're um, really inspirational to me. And uh, when I listen to their songs. You know, I hope for one day I write a good enough song as they do. Now, where do you draw your experiences from when you write, man? Really, it, it comes from an idea. I really get most of my song ideas from talking to people, you know, and listening to conversation. And my dad always told me, you know, if you stop and if you listen more than you talk, you'll you'll figure out a lot, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, so that's that's kind of what I do. I get my ideas from. Uh, uh, talking and conversations and stuff too, like different things. I'll put myself in you know another person's situation and then run off and and just see, you know.
2: Uh-huh. Uh,
7: what has this t- town taught you in the years you've been here? Huh. Don't give up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 really easy to uh, to really just be caught up in what everybody else is doing and add other people's success and everything like that. And if you keep working, keep you know, honing your craft. One of these days, it's going to pay off because, you know, people are going to gravitate to uh, original,
2: and they're going to gravitate to what's real, uh-huh. and they know. And I had mentioned a couple of the folks uh, in the intro here that that you had opened for. Who are some of the others that you've had a chance to work with? Oh, uh, Justin Moore, Montgomery Gentry. Um, of course, like I
7: said, Vince Gill, and uh, Vince was very kind. He was honestly the nicest person I've ever met in my life as being a hero of mine. And uh, we sat and talked for at least two hours before our show. And, and, and we talked everything from guitars to songs to songwriting to life to anything, you name it. I mean, and he actually sat behind me on stage when I did my whole show, and I didn't realize until about the second second to the last song. And I turned around and I looked, and I'm like, wow. Mm-hmm. Skills sitting here watching me. I got like, you know, not getting nervous now, you know, but uh, it was awesome, man. I've done a lot of great things, Been, played in other countries, uh, Costa Rica, Belize, and uh, been a lot of different places, and uh, so it's it's really awesome, man. I'm I'm 25 years old, and I can honestly say I've 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 been a lot of places so far, and I can't wait to go more. Uh-huh. So you you have one EP out now. What's on the horizon for you? Well, I have one EP out, and then um, I released two other singles, and actually, uh, song called "She Don't Know It Yet" just hit 100,000 streams on Spotify. I'm mm-hmm. really excited about that. And uh, but yeah, I've just honestly been really writing a lot this year, um, getting stuff done in the studio, trying to, trying to get my songs out there and, and even possibly get some
2: cut one of these days. Uh, now, it's one thing to go out on a stage. You kind of work yourself to where you get comfortable with that, but, but what's that process like once you step into the studio? Is that a comfortable process for you? Yeah, well, honestly, first the first time it really wasn't because you
7: know you go in you're unexpected you're green you don't really know what's going on Um, but I've had the opportunity and and the privilege to work with some of the best studio musicians people like Lonnie Wilson and um, a lot of people Lonnie's played on pretty much every number one hit song from the 80s up to now drums and um it was just it was cool because I mean he come in the he come into the uh vocal booth and we were quitting one of my songs and he said, You see the snare right here, the snare drum? I said, Yeah. He said yeah, it's the same one I cut. A uh, brand new man, uh, Russell done, and uh, played on all the Shenandoah records. He said, "I'm about to use it on your song," and I'm like, "Wow, you know, that's just cool. You know, that's really cool."
2: No pressure there, huh? No,
7: no, no, not at all. But yeah, it's been fun, man. Studio, studio time is is awesome, and when you really have a song that you created and you bring it to these guys and they sit down and pick every part and make it sound the best they can sound Mm -hmm. so do you have time away from music what are some of the other things you're interested in or like to do away from I love the hunt Uh Um, I love going back home and uh, deer hunting turkey hunting and uh, I really I really love to um, just hang out with friends you know and and, I mean I've done this I've been playing music since I was 15 years old so um, playing little festivals and bars starting out and then now being in Nashville and doing this thing and I tell you, it's 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 my life. You right. know, I mean, it's it's like you can't just shut it off. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's one of those things where I'm always progressing, always trying to find the next idea for a song and trying to uh, get
2: the next one out. Man, well, we uh, we appreciate that you took the time to come down here and talk to us. If folks want to hear more of your music, uh, where can they go to hear? It? Yeah,
7: you can go to iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get digital music. Um, you can check that out there. Also, my website just JustinDukes.net, and uh, you can check out where I'll be playing next, and um, and also all the social media sites, Instagram, Facebook, all that
2: good stuff. And uh, I'd really love for y'all to follow and, and uh, meet y'all one day. Yeah, make sure you go check that out. Also, check out the Fast Line Fast Track Spotify playlist yeah. with all of our past, current, and upcoming guests. Uh, we're gonna get his music up there, as long as, as well as everybody you heard here in the past few weeks. Uh, so you can go uh, uh, listen to those songs at your leisure here. But uh, Justin, man, we. Really Really appreciate you taking the time to join us, man. And come back anytime. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. Now we're gonna let him get mic'd up, and then uh, uh, let you listen to some of that music. Now.
7: Hey, y'all. It's Justin Dukes here. This song called "She Don't Know It Yet," and I wrote it with a couple of buddies of mine here in Nashville. Here we go. She was
0: just a friend of a friend caught up with everything about her and i can't pretend that i ain't falling in love or getting lost in every word she says even though we just met she don't know yet but the night's gonna end in my breath and a long kiss a little slow dancing to a country song in a sunset yeah that was a little house on the edge of town with a couple kids running around. She don't
7: song called ain't nothing new wrote it with two good buddies of mine here in nashville and uh, hope y'all
0: like it well how's the weather out west on a beach from property in california are the peaches that sweet like the talk to the bee down in Macon, Georgia. You ever get to see the socks in Boston or try the barbecue down in Austin like you said you would before you live for good, leaving me in this town behind? Well, It's the same old saying, I ain't much changed back home since you moved on. You're still that one. She's a safe sign, a flag climb in the courthouse lawn. You're still gone, and I'm still missing you. Around here, there ain't nothing new. I heard your mama told mine that you got that job that you always wanted. Said you settled down in Seattle. Got a brand new place, and that she's going. If you ever wonder about this town or how I'm doing now, well, it's the same old saying. I ain't much changed back home since you moved on. Still, I won't read a Jesus say you sound a black line in the courthouse long. You're still gone, and I'm still missing you. girl if you ever want to come back we'll still be right here where you left us stuck in the past Cause this the same old saying, now I ain't much change back home to you moved on Still still that one red light of jesus A a black line in the courthouse long you're still gone and i'm still Still gone, and I'm still missing you. Around here, there ain't nothing new. And oh, there ain't nothing new. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. And I wrote this song. Uh, it's called Wood,
7: and I got the idea. I was um, helping my dad rebuild the uh, deer stands last season, and he's like, "Hey man, that piece of wood right there," and I just started thinking. So I wrote the I wrote the first verse and the chorus by myself. Knew where I wanted to take it, and then uh, I got a couple buddies of mine that kept me finishing on out. But uh, hope y'all like it. The song's called Wood.
0: little boy eight years old with a bat in his hands said i'm gonna hit that ball as far as i can they all laughed said there's no way you could ever clear the stands but when the ball sailed over the fence he made him all his fans yeah it was his destiny how it all came to be. Held a set up power, no one understood. Now, some called him a dreamer, never born to be a leader. Funny how little faith can do a whole lot of good. Because he did what people said he never could. Well, that piece of wood. Cow's finger, smoky bars, a hand-me-down flat-top guitar. He left his hometown, bound to be a star. Now they said, "Paying dues won't pay the bills, and you'll never get that far." But now he plays for twenty thousand strong, pouring out his heart. Yeah, it was his destiny. How it all came to be. It'll sit up how no one understood. Now some called him a dreamer, never born to be a leader. Funny how little faith do a whole lot of good. Because he did what people said he never could. Well, that piece of wood. Some called him a liar when he said, follow me. I'm the way to the Father, if you just believe. And with a crown of thorns, they nailed the king to that tree. And he died for our sins and bled for you and me. Yeah, it was his destiny how it all came to be they he'd set up how no one understood that some called him a dreamer never born to be a leader funny how little faith could do a whole lot of good because he did what people said he never could well that piece of wood That piece of wood And that was the
2: music of Justin Dukes. You can check him out at justindukes.net. We want to thank our friends at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop for making that performance possible. Under Nashville's stay-at-home order, the shop is closed until at least April 14th. When it opens, we hope you'll go and support them. They have a great selection of traditional country music on CD and vinyl and a huge selection of really cool merchandise. You can check them out at etrecordshop.com. And while you're searching the Internet in your downtime, make sure you head on over to fastline.com. Check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average Powered by Iron Solutions. And while you're on the website, don't forget to sign up to receive the print catalog for your state or region. Even through this pandemic, the FastLine catalog is still being delivered to your mailbox. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Fast Line Fast Track podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iHeartRadio. Also, be sure to like Fastline Fast Track on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. Next week, we'll keep you up to date on the latest information on how COVID-19 is affecting the agriculture industry. And we'll hear the music of Alex Schofield from the Ernest Tubb Record Shop. Until then, it's Brent Adams saying, y'all come back. And bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fastline Fast Track, presented by Fastline Media Group. To learn more about Fastline's customer focused marketing solutions, visit fastlinemediagroup.com and check out our brand websites fastline.com, bigag.com, and pinktractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at brent.adams at fastline.com.